grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, it's Jo Sparrow here. I'm the president of Jigsaw Queensland and the host of Adult Perspective. Today's guest first flipped across my radar a few years back on social media, and I have to say that from that moment, I've been fascinated by her. Heather Kanang is a Himalayan climber, trekker, yoga teacher, espresso lover, and late discovery adoptee. While we connected via social media a while back, my first interaction with her was to inquire about a trek she was leading in Nepal over Christmas. I chickened out in the end, but it's still on my radar for the future. Today, we'll be talking to Heather about her experience as a late discoverer and her incredibly interesting life. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Heather. Thanks, Joe, And thanks very much for inviting me along and giving me the opportunity to tell my story. I did particularly love your introduction because that pretty much sums me up. So trekking yoga coffee. <laughs> and just that in cats. And, uh, and that's pretty much it. And look, it doesn't matter that you're a cat person. I'm a dog person. They're, they've both got fur, haven't they? Pets are wonderful. <laughs> Before we get into the adoption portion of the interview, Heather, um, can you tell us a bit about your adventurous nature and how you got into trekking? I would love to, um, bearing in mind that, as we know, as adopted people, eventually what starts out as something that seems completely unrelated to anything else, eventually all the threads join together. It's just that at the point you don't understand why. Um, so when I was really young, five, four or five years old, I used to sit down in front of the television every Sunday night and watch Disneyland. That was my, my thing. And particularly excited when uh, Disneyland was, there goes my cat, Disneyland was going to Adventureland. So anything involving outdoors, Davy Crockett, um, mountains, Heidi, I was obsessed by Heidi. There was something about that that was so different to my world and being born in Brisbane flat hot I never re I never really resonated with Brisbane but I was fascinated by this other world and I wanted a part of it and no one understood my interest in it so I'd be watching Disneyland or I'd be watching a documentary oh, Himalayan documentary Canada you name it mountains snow peaks I would just literally be, I want to go there. And my family would say, don't be ridiculous. You come from Brisbane. This is your life. You'll never get there. So it was something that it was one of those things that I wanted to do. And it was part of me. And then as I got older, had some, my friends from high school started going to nightclubs 
And I felt completely out of my comfort zone. Hated it. Used to do the whole thing, get dressed up, lay the makeup on, do the blow dry, tight jeans. It was the 80s. <laughs> Hung around, you know, waiting. I don't know, waiting for what? For some guy to come up and ask you to dance. And I would have this look on my face like, don't even come near me. <laughs> I'm not interested. And my friend, I realized later, she's a complete extrovert. I was an introvert. I hated every minute of every time that I was in that situation. And I, of course, I didn't have any self-awareness about why I hated it. But if you said something to me like, hey, let's go for bushwalk or let's do this, completely on board. And then when I was younger, luckily, I had the opportunity to become a girl guide. So girl guiding to me was my introduction to this other world where camping was a thing. So I had the best guide leader ever and she became a mentor, like one of my early mentors of a female that was strong, um, could do anything, you name it. And one day I was in my little girl guides uniform walking past and she said to me, Heather, go and uh, boil a pot of water and make me tea. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so cool. So chopped some wood up, like literally built a fire, boink the thing, gave it a cup of tea, not understanding that I was actually you know, not being judged as such, but being given the confidence to do stuff. And I was, I loved it. I just embraced it. Then when we went camping over weekends, I reckon I was the only person that didn't want to come home. So everyone else is there saying, oh, I miss my parents. I can't wait to go home. I'm like, I love it here. Maybe we could stay a little longer. And I would be um, quite grief stricken when I had to come home. And I'm thinking, something wrong with me? I must be kind of weird. You know, all these people can't wait to get home. And so Girl Guides became my link towards I wanted something more along that adventurous path. And then when I met my first boyfriend, he was into rock climbing. And this is, it's like these little stepping stones. A rock climbing world that I had no idea existed, um, that there was actually a climbing club at University of Queensland. And so I became what was known at the time as a belay bitch. So a belay bitch is that person that stands down the bottom and holds the rope while other person does all the glorious stuff like climbing. But I was quite happy to do that because I was like, you know, along the scene. And then we went camping and it was like, wow, this is so cool. We went to the Blue Mountains. Then said boyfriend said, hey, why don't we do the Overland Track in Tasmania? And I think I was 20. I had no money. And we devised a plan where we bought two tickets to Melbourne, $58 return on the bus. And we got on the bus, went to Melbourne, camped out overnight, got the ferry, slept on the deck to save money, landed in Devonport. And then we hitchhiked our way to the start of Cradle Mountain National Park, and we did the Overland Track. First time I'd ever carried a pack. First time I had done a multiple day walk. And if anyone's ever done the Overland Track, the first day is the worst day. It's really hard. It's out along the button grass and up a really steep climb. Well, anyway, I whinge the entire time. <laughs> I hate this. What am I doing here? You're cruel. Um, why are you dragging me on this horrendous thing 
to the point where he ended up carrying, I think, 98% of the load and I had my pathetic little pack. And the first night I refused to do anything. I said, I'm not cooking dinner. I hate this. This trekking thing is just rubbish. Anyway, two days later, I was hooked. Like, man, it's the best thing I've done in my life. I love this thing. And there was something about the, the wilderness, the, I don't know. It's everything that makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Ticked all these boxes and I felt contented and I felt happy and I felt that I'd achieved something at the end of it. And I fell in love with Tasmania, which is an ongoing love. Absolutely adore Tasmania. Got caught up in the whole no dams protest, met Bob Brown, went to Strawn, got arrested, still top of my bucket list of things to do. <laughs> were absolutely horrified. Um, I bought my boyfriend home and my parents said when he'd left, don't ever bring home anyone with a pair of cut-off denim shirts, shorts, a tattoo and an earring ever again. So I thought, hmm, interesting. So <laughs> what do you do when you're told to do some, not to do something? You just do it behind their back. So that was kind of the start of my independent streak. I think I was 21 then. Interestingly then, Bill, that my boyfriend said, I really want to go to Nepal. And I said, oh, Nepal. I want to go to Nepal too. I've watched all these documentaries about Ed Hillary somewhere. I really want to go. So seed planted, said boyfriend then decided that he was going to move to Rockhampton to progress his job and asked me to marry him. As soon as he asked me to marry him, I just ran away. So no, not moving to Rocky, not on my bucket list. Rockhampton is not my idea of paradise um sorry buddy you go to rocky i'm going to nepal i have this plan i'm going to travel the world and rockhampton is not on my radar so mm-hmm. did a big flick sad about it didn't understand why at the time and that was my that was my ambition so got a job post university saved some money and that next little stepping stone i was listening to the radio one very fateful must have been Sunday night or something, Triple M, when Triple M just launched in Brisbane and there was an ad on the radio that said, wanted, it's like it's happened yesterday, 15 adventurous people to trek Nepal. Call this number, write out for a brochure and I was the first person to fill out that form, send it off in the mail and get this brochure and by then I was just hooked. I had no idea how I was going to pay for it. Uh, I paid my deposit. And I worked my butt off to get there. And I had to borrow a camera because uh, my parents were just completely not on board. They to the mm-hmm. point where they didn't even believe that this was a thing. So come, um, this is exactly verbatim. Come the day that I was leaving, like despite me having been organizing this for the last, you know, six months, uh, passport, spending money, camera gear, trekking boots, everything I'd used in Tasmania, I said to my parents, can you drive me to the airport on Saturday morning? And they said, why? And I said, I'm going trekking in Nepal. And they said, don't be ridiculous. So come Saturday morning, I'm standing there and they drove me to the airport and I think their jaws were dropping out, you know, out of their mouths and they said goodbye to me. 
And I got on the plane, we flew to Sydney. I remember clearly the first time I landed in Thailand and I walked down the stairs of the plane and I was just smitten. There was a whole world out there and Brisbane was not really where I wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, and the world was just potential. It was everything, different smell, different feeling, different culture, and that was it. So I fell in love with Thailand, not knowing that was just a little little thing when I was actually going to really fall in love with Nepal. So two days later, get back on the plane, fly to Nepal, landed, and there was something magical about it that I still can't describe. It was so different, um, the air being in the Northern Hemisphere, different stars, low humidity. I could literally see the mountains from the airport and something clicked in me that this was what I wanted. I, and I, I did the trek. It was amazing. It was really long back in the day where you had to walk on the Annapurna Circuit. I think we walked for 28 days and then we went rafting. And that was my world. I changed my whole perspective and my confidence grew. So suddenly I wasn't this person that felt like a shag on a rock at a nightclub. I was a person that was doing what I wanted to do. When I got off the plane in Brisbane, my best friend came to the airport to meet me because I think she also didn't think I was ever going to go anywhere. And she said, oh my God, I can't believe you're the same person. You're so confident. And there were people that I'd been on the trek with that were walking away. And I'm like, hi, see ya, bye. Like we'd, I'd formed a new bunch of friends. And I think she was a little taken aback that I went on the plane like this shy, insecure person and I got off the plane a completely different person. And from then our worlds diverged and that was the start of my love of Nepal. And as soon as I left Nepal, I felt a grief when we were taking off, but I swore I was going back again. Mm-hmm. And, I did, and I've been back every year and it still is, I don't know, can't describe it, friends, experiences challenge mountains you name it yeah i am um, i really understand that i have a uh nephew also adopted who um has been to Nepal many times and has loved it and uh, our son after he finished school he kind of was really lost he didn't seem to know what he wanted to do where he wanted to go And um, my nephew invited him along with his family to go back over there for another, you know, 14 or 16 days. And it was very short notice and we jumped at the chance. And when he came back, his whole world had just opened up and he sort of took off in a direction and he hasn't stopped since then. Everything's just got brighter and better for him since he went. So something about that, getting the confidence to go out on your own and figure out who you are, I think. And for an adopted person, even though you didn't know at that time, um, it would have been very important in your development, I imagine. I think also it's the first time where you have all day, and this is the most important thing about trekking that I see now that I'm a a trekking guide, the change in people. uh, When you walk for numerous days and you just have all day to let your mind wander, that you you'd make decisions. I've seen people make life-changing decisions on treks, whether it's mm-hmm. to leave a relationship or to change jobs. Um, because you just have it's like moving meditation all day. There are no limitations to what what your mind does. It's 
can it's a difficult for some people it's really difficult to just get up every morning and do something and then go to bed at night get up and do it again but it's the repeatability that is so comforting mm. once you get into that routine that you can think anything all you have to do basically is wake up eat walk shit go to bed yes yeah <laughs> get up and do it again so you know what a luxury of having these people looking after you and I that's the thing it's the freedom wherever it was you know and just Nepal gives you the opportunity to do it in a very safe environment it's the mental freedom that allow that allows all those things that you thought previously were impossible become possible yeah it's amazing I think that was one of the things that actually scared me a bit about going at Christmas when I was thinking about it you know one of the things I didn't think my fitness was quite where it should be at that time which I I think yeah yeah, that's changed (laughs) now I feel a lot fitter now um then it was over Christmas and I didn't think I could leave my family over Christmas um but then also maybe I was a little scared about because I fill up a lot of my space with things even though I'm an introvert I need to get away from people to recharge um and I do like my own space I often fill it up with noise or podcasts or books or um and so maybe I was a little fearful of that space and what um and what it would allow my head to do I don't know maybe I was a little fearful about that and that's very very natural uh everything you've just expressed would be on the list of questions that people have to me when they're coming trekking. Am I fit enough? Um, How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And no one ever says, I don't think I've ever met anyone says, I'm so fit for this trek. You know, everyone says, I'm not fit enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. (laughs) Not that I'm saying you should do it, but anyway, throw it out there. When the time's right, it it will happen. You'll just push that button it's on my radar you're on my radar um (laughs) so the truth of adoptive status can be discovered in a variety of ways you know sometimes it's a secret that's revealed following the death of a parent through accidental disclosure by a friend or relative or neighbor when approached by a biological family member when applying for a passport by coming across adoption papers or during an argument even with a family member Heather, one thing I've learned about adoption is that there are many shared themes and experiences, but no two adoption stories are the same. Can you tell us about the day that you discovered that you were adopted? I remember it like it was yesterday. I had no idea that I was adopted, yet in within saying that there's always these little little things that happened we I would put them down as weird things like tiny little occurrences throughout my life that as a kid how do you explain that thing so you just if you're if someone's pretending that you live in this ideal world or you know this the world of your adoptive parents how would a kid ever know that there's anything that's not quite right so it's almost like a form of gaslighting so you've got that world happening so here's me. It was a Wednesday night. I drove over with my husband at the time uh, to my parents' house where I had grown up, my brother had grown up. So our, our childhood home, my father died in 1993 and my mother was still living in the house and had was suffering from dementia. So my brother convinced her eventually to go into a a nursing home 
um, on the north coast. And so then our job was to clear out the house for sale because to put anyone into a nursing home requires a, a huge bond. I think it was like a, you know, several hundred thousand dollar bond. And so the only way that he could do this was if we had we had to put the house in, on the market. So he sent me a message and said, hey, can you come over and help me <clears throat> clean up and decide what you want to keep? So it's all out. Everything was in the house because my mother had not cleared anything out when I was a kid. So I'm talking, you know, school projects, university projects, all of my treasures that I'd gathered up around the world were in the garage and tea chests that I've sent home from London and like my life was there. Um, so I rocked up as I normally would on a Wednesday night, knocked on the door and my brother was there and his wife were there. It's like I can see the whole thing. And I walked in and my brother had an envelope in his hand and he said, Heather, here's some photos that I thought you might like to keep and here's your adoption papers. Oof. So, yeah, my life at that moment, it was like, Obviously, it's like a huge shock, but it's like you're you're there, but you're not there. There's like yeah. you're you're in the moment, but you're like watching yourself. And it was almost it was so surreal that um, I just could not understand what he was doing. So he handed me this envelope, and then it went. It was just such a horrendous night because I'm in shock, and. My brother then asked me, oh, do you want to keep this? Do you want to keep that? Do you want to keep something else? I'm thinking, what the W2F, mm. you just told me something and now you're talking about something else and you just expect me to accept what you just told me. So I just, I was in such a state of shock that I started with a few questions like, what do you mean I'm adopted? Um how long have you have how long have you known? And so it's shock after shock after shock. So there's initial shock, and then there's a shock that oh, actually, I'm not your brother. I'm adopted as well. Um, I've actually known for 10 years. And so on and on it went. I think the worst of the worst was that he then didn't give me any compassion or time to think that this is really like life-changing but also at that that moment in time he then threw out everything in the house that related to my history so that night I lost everything but I also lost all my memories all my art projects all my souvenirs because he got a removalist in like and they just took everything away so because I wasn't in the state of mind to defend myself or to say no give me time I want that I want everything here I want to choose what I want I didn't have anything so I lost everything I lost everything that didn't that I didn't have in my apartment that I had left in storage it's just gone so every photo it's like you know your house burns down so you lose everything and then it's like how can how can you make a bad situation worse? Because then you don't even have that memory to look back on. You don't have the photos to say, remember that thing. So it's like someone has just wiped out in one 
minute has wiped out your entire existence. I remember saying to my husband, I have to go. So I got into the car and I was numb. And I think we stopped in Newmarket for some takeaway noodles. I remember that. I got home and there's a, res there's a resilience about me because <laughs> as soon as I got home after eating the noodles, I went to my computer. This is the night I found out I was adopted. And I started looking for organizations that could help me. And I was aware of Jigsaw. For some reason, I had watched a show, you know, like a morning show and someone from Jigsaw had been there and they were talked about this thing. And of course, you're thinking, well, that's interesting. It won't affect me. However, there was a resilience about me that I had to find a way through what was still something that I didn't really understand. So I started Googling who out there helps you with this kind of stuff. And I went to bed and when I got into, it was only when I got into bed that I pulled out the papers again and I started looking at these papers that had my parents, you know, had written away this thing or they had taken control. I just it's so fucking weird to read something that had a pretend birth certificate. That's the other thing that adopt people know that the birth certificate you've got is not your birth certificate. Um, that all these little things start just started to fall into place. So when, so when I uh, had to get my passport, of course, you need an original birth certificate. So this was one of those little weird things. I said to my mother, hey, mum, I need a copy of my original birth certificate. And my mother was not one of those people that offered up to do stuff. Uh, so she said, I'll take care of that. So that, oh, that's unusual. So when I got my original birth certificate, the names of my parents were penciled in and I didn't realize that that wasn't normal. So I just accepted it. Uh, and then I applied for my passport. And then suddenly all these little things, you know, the moment that you find out all these threads make sense. And then you feel stupid. Like, why didn't I think about that previously? And of course, how can you know? So it all starts from there. And every trigger or anything that's happened in your life, it's just nothing's ever going to be the same. So the next thing I remember the next morning, because at the time I was really into cycling. Cycling was my life. I was riding my bike five or six times a week. I was racing at a state level. I loved it. Uh, I went on our morning training ride. We're having coffee. And I told everybody. And I said, hey, guess what I found out last night? And everyone just sat there, because not judgmentally, but just so shocked that this could happen to someone that they knew. But I remember saying, I don't want any more lies about this. There was something about truthfulness, not lying. It, unless you've lived it, you know, this circumstances are just so horrendous but then within that thing you just know that you've got to just pick up and go on so I went to work but the whole time you're living in this numb state um what I didn't understand how this would affect me that this is not just the physical telling it's the unraveling of your life and it's that's just the start of it so I just want it to be I read you know your notes and 
Similarly, I just wanted this to be over as soon as possible, right? How do I get through this? How do I understand it? How do I get better from whatever's happened to me? And what are the steps that I can do straight up that's going to fix it? And uh, and I hope it's over by Wednesday because, you know, I really don't have time for this. Okay, so let's just get on with it. <laughs> that box, tick that box, tick that box. And so at work, I went through my little checklist of things that I had to do. And it was like, obviously, see a psychologist was next on the list. So made an appointment to see a psychologist who wasn't, I don't think, bad at her job, but didn't understand the impact. So I had one session, walked in, I said, this is what I found out. And she, we did some EMDR at the time uh, about the impact of the the moment that my brother told me. And I did that. I said, okay, thanks very much. See you later. Bye. So they right, tick the tick the psychologist box. So don't have to do that one anymore. And then when my life started unraveling, probably three or four months later, I could not, I did not know why. Um, the most painful thing for me is that I had to stop racing my bike because I started getting anxiety, um, panic attacks, what was something that was simple and enjoyable becoming became a nightmare. And I didn't know why. It's the lack of understanding about because you're in it. So one day what something simple and joyous became, I was scared. I was scared of being in a big bunch of cyclists. I was scared of stopping. I was scared of starting. Um, it's shameful. I, you can't ride with the people that you rode with. And so my whole life just imploded. And sadly, because cycling was a thing that was making me mentally happy. I was getting all my, you know, all the endorphins you get from being out in the road in the in the space was taken away. But weirdly, well, not weirdly, there's obviously a reason for it. Trekking was never like that. So whenever I got on the plane and I went to Nepal. I went overseas. My life was just as I knew it. There was none of that stuff. There was no anxiety. There was no depression. There was no PTSD. Um, I was happy. And so as soon as I landed back in Brisbane again, it was like being hit on the back of the head. It would all come back to me again. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm so sorry you had that experience. It the thing that stands out for me is just how utterly destabilizing it was for you um, and how it even made you just distrust yourself, which is, yeah. I mean, it's just the worst thing. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how you say going back to Nepal didn't carry the same weight as the thing that you were doing at the time when you found out. Yeah. It's almost like they say with trauma that, um, you know, the goal is to try and find your way back to the person you were before yeah, the trauma happened, which is very difficult for adopted people because yeah. one of our traumas happened when we we're separated. Um, yeah. But this was a trauma that happened when you discovered. And obviously that piece of you that was um, that was not tied to that discovery was in Nepal. And I'm yeah. so I'm so pleased that you had that. I'm yeah. so pleased that that was like a, an anchor that you could cling to. Yeah. your relationship with your adoptive parents like when you were growing up and, and with your family 
to me, I, I, I thought I had, I think this is part of the shock also is that I thought I was part of the world's most boring um, nuclear family. So I had mother, father, brother. I went to Stafford Kindy. I went to Stafford State School. I was in Stafford Swimming Club. My world existed in Stafford. I was a Stafford Girl Guide and that was my life. I was, you know, stable parents, brother who was two and a half years older than me. I didn't think anything was odd about my upbringing except my parents were quite old. So both my parents were in their 40s when I thought that I was born. So I was a little bit ashamed of my parents at school because they were older than other parents. So at primary school, my parents were very involved in the whole school PNC thing. Uh, swim, swimming became my life. So my brother was scared of the water and they decided that my brother needed swimming lessons. So I think maybe he was six or seven. Anyway, so I was not scared of the water. I was one of those people, if you took me to the beach, I would just make a beeline for the water. Like, so I would run to the water. I love water. So when my brother started getting swimming lessons, I insisted on getting swimming lessons as well. But I think I was only maybe three. So I learned to swim. And then I, because my parents were something about having to make you good at something. So swimming then became the center of my life for 10 years. I hated it. I learned to hate it because like any kid that's pushed into something, you lose the joy of it. So learn to swim, become swim squad, became Christmas holidays were spent at Redcliffe because it was close to my pool. So, hey, how good's that? Three sessions in the pool every day. And then my father became a judge, a swimming judge, and my mother became a timekeeper. It's like this whole world revolved around swimming. So the pressure then on you to be a good swimmer because the world revolved around swimming and my brother was a swimmer. Every day, that was my life. We got in the car and we drove to Redcliffe, lived at Stafford, to the point where I hated it. So by the time I was 14 or 15, I think you become a little more aware about how you might get out of things. So I remember coming out with a plot. I said to my mother, well, you know, if I'm going to be really good at school, obviously I can't be good at my study and swim at the same time. I think that was just it was not a lie, but it was just a way of getting out of it. So my mother's like, oh, better be good at school then, better stop swimming. So I stopped swimming, but I stopped completely. So I just gave it up. That was just one example. It was the same with Girl Guides. So I joined Girl Guides. Guides I loved it. And one of the enduring memories is that my mother was then invited to join the what they call the local auxiliary. Like it's like a parent mother's thing. And she had to learn the girl guide promise. I told her that I'm talking, I'm like eight years old. Um, I was the best girl guide ever. I used to iron my uniform the night before, like extra starch on the sleeves, had my uniform prepared to put on the next day. 
my mother was the opposite. She was very disorganized. And come the day where we had to go to this thing where she had to turn up and do this promise, she hadn't looked at the words. She hadn't prepared for it. And I was so embarrassed to the point where I was reading it out and leading her through it. And that was the first moment I realized that I had become the parent and that my mother didn't have skills, parenting skills. But of course, I didn't know that this was a thing. I was always really close to my dad. So I think that's a thing that I've found since that bonding with fathers is very different to bonding with mothers because fathers can be a father figure without having to be biologically connected to you. So I love my dad. He was handy. He built everything. He made everything. He, we, we thought alike. Um, my mother, I didn't have that relationship with. And I was always criticized by my friends about being rude to my mother. So everything was always a secret. Um, if my best friend would come over for dinner, she would start joking about, I remember her joking about, because we talked about it previously, her saying she knew exactly what time she was born. She knew what day she was born, what time she was born, the circumstances of her birth. I said, I don't know anything about that. It's never mentioned. No one ever talks about it. And so she said as a joke, oh, when I'm coming over for dinner on Saturday night, I'm going to ask your parents the circumstances of your birth. I said, if you do that, you're never coming to my house again. Oh. So there was something I knew that was a big gap there, but I did not want her to ask this question. So there's this little weird things that mm. don't have any reasoning for. And my brother, I think that was the biggest shock because my brother looks a little bit like me. So we're both tall. I'm 180 centimetres. My brother's 184 centimetres. My dad was tall and my mother was four foot six, right? So then I would say, I wouldn't even say it. My parents would make excuses about why I was tall. Uh, your, your auntie was really tall or your grandfather was really tall. So it was like they'd come up with these stories about how to explain biological differences. I had no close relatives when I was a kid. It was very much a nuclear family. We were not allowed to talk to, relate to cousins or that kind of level. So I had, you know, aunties or grandmother, but not cousins. We didn't talk to these people. I didn't know who they were. And then suddenly in my teens, we started going out and relating to all these cousins. And I'm thinking, why weren't they part of my life when I was younger? So it's this weird kind of shit that you just take for, you know, take for granted. So that was my upbringing was absolutely normal. But within the realms of normal, there were things that did not make sense. When I was at kindy, I was the only kid that wasn't allowed to go swimming. So make sense of that i'm talking swimming in like a wading pool so everyone else would be swimming and i'd have to sit there so what's that about and then you know six months later i'm at swim club learning to be a swimmer there were these yeah. things that just flipped and flopped 
and I didn't understand it. So I think there was a point as I became a teenager that I started rebelling, quiet rebellion. You know, I was never a rebellious kid, but um, when I went to high school, I started pushing the agenda a little bit about, you know, being controlled. And one of the greatest moments of my life in grade nine was when my mother got a job. So I become the classic latchkey child. So I had a key to the house. It was like freedom, baby. So every afternoon, you know, go to the shopping center and hang out and that kind of stuff. So towards then just being constricted and never, I was never confident in what I did. I dropped out of uni after the first year. So little things now that adopted people understand I had no idea what I wanted to do so when I was at school primary school love primary school high school everyone knew what they wanted to do I had no idea so we had one hour with a guidance counselor and the guidance counselor says fill out that form and uh okay you should be a teacher or a nurse right that was my that was my my choices in my mind I wanted to be an air hostess. So air hostessing was the ultimate. When I looked up the quals to be an air hostess, I was shocked to find out that I was too tall. So there's another shaming thing, right? Too tall to be an air hostess, right? So you can be a teacher or you can be a nurse. So when I got my QTAC form, I ticked the first box, which was teaching degree. And disappointingly I was accepted so <laughs> my parents were so goddamn excited because I was going to university they could tell their friends that I was going to university and there was my life I had to go to university because my parents had said they'd already told their friends so off I go to university I hated it I didn't understand the concept of studying without being managed like in high school I didn't have these sort of skills to self-inquire um i just felt like i was completely out of my depth it wasn't that i wasn't smart it was just like i no one was supporting me and i dropped out because of course one of the things about adoption or adopted people is they have to be good at everything because otherwise you feel like you're being abandoned so because i was only just just scraping through the pass mark i dropped out and so the next year I got my little tent and I got the bus to Mooloolaba and I lived in a tent in a caravan park in Mooloolaba for a year and I loved it so much. So yeah. lived in a tent, got the doll to my parents' chagrin, uh, swam, ran along the beach, ate banana sandwiches <laughs> and loved it. And then... Because I was on the dole, I had to come back to Brisbane. And my life has always been a series of people that took the time out to mentor me. And because I'd been on the dole, I had to go to the good old CES, and I think it was in the valley. And this man was just amazing. And he sat me down and he treated me like a real person. And he said, Heather, Heather you're wasting your life. I've enrolled you at an art course. It's all free. All you got to do is show up. It starts on Monday. I think you've got untapped potential. 
So I moved back to Brisbane. I got the bus back to Brisbane and I started this course and I absolutely loved it. I There were 16 subjects. I got honours in every subject. And suddenly I was like, oh, my God, this whole study thing is really cool. So something happened in that time that I just embraced this whole thing. And suddenly I was not bad at something. I was good at something. And that really kick-started my desire to so I did an arts degree I did an arts degree at UQ I did a fine arts degree later but again it's just been a series of doing stuff without really understanding what I wanted to do so I just kept studying and then the good old trek came along the ad for the trek did that came back thought oh how am I going to make money to travel more and my next little thing, make money, make money. So I did another three treks. And then the big one was go to Nepal, not come home. And then I got in a bus and I got a bus overland to London from Kathmandu. So four months on a bus. Four and months on a bus. Four months on a bus. Wow. 26 countries. Drove from Kathmandu to London best thing ever and I landed in London with 27 pounds no return ticket but a piece of paper that said I was a teacher so even though I had never taught a day in my life um, teachers were really uh, desirable was a desirable thing in the UK so I just fudged it and I said yeah hell I'm a teacher so I got a two-year work permit so two-year work permit 27 dollars in the bank no return ticket, and I made my life from nothing to something. So I didn't know I was adopted. So this didn't happen. I'm in my 20s. And, of course, it's like the reinvention of yourself. So you start with nothing. You go out and get the shittiest job ever, which was actually packing videos at this really cold warehouse somewhere in Wembley at a certain rate of pay. And then I realized that working outside in a coal factory was so much worse than working in an office where you got, it was warm. So I got an office job and that's how I got into my whole career of project management. Yeah. Weird series. Yeah. Got a job, made money, shared a house, lived in London, never wanted to come home. I had found Nirvana. I had found people that looked like me. Um, When I went to Scandinavia, there were tall people. It was the first time in my life that I didn't stand out, that I was just average. Like all these Norwegian and Swedish and Danish people were all really tall. And so I just walked along the street and no one said, wow, you're tall or, you know, made fun of me for being tall. And I had found my people, baby. I was part of this whole thing and I got, I was really, I was working for Saatchi and Saatchi advertising firm. I was working Barclay Square. I was having a great time. I had never wanted to come home. I did not want to ever come home. And one day I got a call from my father to say that he had cancer and it was time for me to come home. So I packed up everything, made my way back to Australia the slowest way possible via Nepal, via a trek. And I came home and 
that was it. I moved back into the family home and my dad died in 1993 and I felt stuck and I didn't know why. Here I was back again and my life was back to this existence and I was sad and depressed and got a job in an office and worked my way back up through the corporate world and I had this hankering to go back to London. I tried everything I possibly could but they did not give you permit to go to live there unless you had a British grandparent. And as far as I knew, I was like fifth generation Australian. And so there was no way to go back unless you were sponsored by your employer. So my life in the UK just petered away and I hankered after it for years and years and years. And I, my dad died and that was really upsetting, obviously. Um, Anyway, weird shit. My dad died at home. So he had been in a hospice and he decided he wanted to come home. So he had cancer. And I was there when he died. My brother was there. My mother was there. And he died in the house. While he is still in the house after he passed away, and my mother had called the funeral director to deal with all the stuff that you do. I was sitting in the lounge room of my family home and the funeral director's there. And this is one of those other moments, it's like sliding doors moment. I heard my mother saying to the funeral director when they're talking, asking questions about, um, has your, has your, was your husband ever married previously? And I'm just thinking to myself, what a stupid question. And my mother said, yes, my father had been married previously. I'm like WTF. And I heard her say he'd been married. They had no kids. And it was another secret. It was never mentioned again. I didn't have the whatever was lacking in communication with my parents I could never ask that question. I could never say, what do you mean my father was married before? So it was just something that I buried away in the corner of my mind. Mm -hmm. My brother seemed to know about it, but he didn't tell me about it. And I just pushed it away. And it was just, it was just there. So that was like the first real secret that this understanding that my father had been married, but it didn't really kind of become part of the jigsaw puzzle. So that was my upbringing. It went from, very, very normal to a, a few cracks started to appear. But still at the point where my father died, I had absolutely no idea that I wasn't their biological child. So yeah. that was kind of it. Yeah. Heather, have you been able to meet up with any of your biological family? Oh, yeah. So that is then another <laughs> thing. I think one of, the, one of the things when I found out I was adopted, it's like the full spectrum of grief. So there's shock, anger, disbelief. But within that, there was also this kind of little bud of excitement that maybe the reason that I had been stuck in this very boring 
working class family was maybe because, and this is my dream, I was actually the child of a long lost Italian count or countess or something. Mm -hmm. And that that was my that was my real world. And so suddenly I'm thinking, what if my real parents are actually like, you know, European royalty and I'm living this very boring life in Stafford. So there's something about the expectation that you are something different. And so I had this little thing about who am I? Weirdly, so when I found out I was adopted, I had this loyalty to my mother because she was in a nursing home and I didn't start looking for my birth family until the day she died. So I made a commitment in my mind that I was loyal to her. So I'm this weird sort of loyalty that, no, she's my mother and I'm not looking for this people, these people. So when she died, I made a commitment. This is one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life. So I knew I was adopted, but I chose not to tell her because I figured that she'd spent all this time trying to hide it. So yeah, the fact that she had dementia, I had nothing to gain from telling her. So I just let it slide. And at the funeral, because my brother had done the eulogy for my dad, I made a commitment that I was going to do her eulogy. So I stood up and I talked about her and all my cousins were there and all my they all knew that I was adopted, clearly. I never mentioned it. Um, so I did the eulogy and I fully played along the game that I'm your daughter in this thing. And from that day, not one of my cousins has spoken to me. Mm. Uh, so my whole family just wiped me. My brother and I still had a relationship, but none of my cousins or aunties or uncles ever spoke to me again um, because they didn't forgive us for putting my mother into a nursing home. So there is that was whole part of my life was wiped out. So then the day my mother died, then I started thinking I need to find out more. So good old Mr. Google, Dr. Google. I also had an amazing boss. So by this time I'm working at Telstra. And for all the bad things, I've had some amazing mentors and I had this most wonderful boss that if I he had just kept working there, I probably would be like, you know, CEO of Telstra by now. So he he was the one person that believed in me. So he was, he would push me to the point where only gent gently push me in the direction of you can do this, you can do that. I'm going, no, I can't. Yes, you can. So he would put me up for jobs and I would get the job and I would be good at the job. So I started thinking and I told him. So the moment I found out I was adopted, he was the one person I did tell at work. So being a great person that he was, he did some research and he found out that the Salvation Army had a, a unit that looked for families, families sort of reunion unit. So I downloaded all the forms, I filled out all the forms, and then I had to go through all these horrendous things like because I worked in the city, I had to go to births, deaths and marriages to apply for a birth certificate to see if my mother was alive. And so these are the things that you do. So in my lunch hour, I remember walking down George Street and having to front up 
to find a piece of paper to find out if my birth mother was alive or dead. So, and it's all done over a counter where you're handed an envelope. And I'm sitting there and I'm pulling out this piece of paper and going, yes, she's still alive. So then you get your own birth certificate and you find out little threads of, it had her name on it, it had her mother on it, but there was no father listed, you know, so my father wasn't listed. Um, and of course you have to apply for permission to get your own information because luckily my record was not sealed because of the rules that went through in Queensland in the 90s that you were able to access this information. So it's all about you having to pay money to get information relating to you. So I did all that, ticked all the boxes, got my paperwork together, put it in an envelope, posted it off. There you go. I'm looking for this person. And two days later, Two days later, I was about to walk into a meeting and I had a call on my mobile phone and I thought it must be work-related. So I answered the phone. It was the Salvation Army saying, we found your mother. So I had two days between sending the paperwork off and this phone call. So it was too soon um, for me to actually contemplate what was about to happen. They'd found my mother and... The circumstances, the way that they dealt with it was that they were the intermediary, so you weren't allowed to actually communicate with this person. You had to write a letter to them and it went to a mailbox and then they'd send your letter to her and then she wrote a letter to me. So this is how it happened. Did that, wrote the letter. My mother sent me a letter introducing herself and her circumstances. So when you find out, well, for me, I then had this sort of idealized version about what my family would be like, that they were going to be everything that I hadn't had. So they were going to be the people that I related to. They were going to be my future. I was going to form a bond with these people and life was going to be just amazing. So I did that first connection and then my mother being the mother that I found out my mother was, she went around the outside of the boundaries of what you were supposed to do. She Googled me and found out my, my mobile number and she called me straight up wow. and left a message. So I was out working. I was, I was, teach, teach, um, yeah, I was teaching yoga and I came home and my husband said, there's a message on the answer machine from birth mother and I just looked at him and said what what are you talking about so I couldn't listen to the message like I I just had I locked in the end I did it took me two hours to walk into the office close the door listen to the message of this this person that was my mother and she told me too much like obviously a lifetime of grief in the message just in, all in the message. Wow. Message, message right so uh-huh. I went to work the next day and I told my boss because my boss was at that time my lifeline because my husband just did not understand or care um because this was just about his life going off track so he had a life and suddenly this horrible thing was happening and just go and deal with it and come back when you fixed your shit I went to work and I told my boss hey guess what my mother called me last night and he said are you going to call her back I said hell no and he said yes you are no I'm not 
We said, yes, you are. There's a conference room. Go in there, lock the door, ring her up, go and do it. So because of <laughs> I did, I called her and she just overwhelmed me with information and relatives and siblings and I in the end I had to pause the call because I just couldn't take it in I was making notes and I said gotta go so that led to her then wanting me to come to see her so I planned that I would go and see her she lives in North Queensland Cairns I had never been to Cairns before I'd traveled all around the world never been to Cairns and so booked a flight to Cairns, kind of excited, you know, nervous, excited, and took my very good friend with me, who was the one person I could trust, and he came with me. And we stayed. I remember making all these decisions. If I'm going to Cairns and about to do something really scary, I'm going to stay in a five-star hotel. So I stayed at the um, Shangri-La thinking, well, I may as well make a little holiday of it. So I've always got this thing about self-preservation or, you know, look after yourself. So I stayed at the Shangri-La, which is just magic, and then had planned that we were going to go out and see her. And so she had said, this is my address. Come and meet. We'll meet on this day. So had it all planned. I was nervous. I'd done a recce the day before. So she was out, lived out near the airport hired a car, drove past, did, did a drive-by to make sure we knew where the house was, the whole thing. Next day, right. So off we go. Had to text her mobile number. And I text her to say we're on her way, on the way. And she had turned, she turned her phone off. So after being rejected once, she rejected me again. And so I thought, fuck you, I'm coming. So got in the car, drove there, and she was sitting on the door on the steps of the house. And she had turned the phone off because she was so scared. And I walked across the grass and she was sitting on the stairs. And she was the first person I'd ever seen that looked like me. And my, who's now my partner, who was with me at the time, he said he could not believe that someone had, we had these features that were the same. We had the same eyes. We had the same hands. We had the same look. And I had never been reflected in anyone before. So there's that. They're the good things. And then the bad things are, is that she was an alcoholic. Um, she was damaged. She had never done anything about healing her demons. Um, so I went into the house, barely furnished house, middle of summer, and she was just a broken person. But there was something about her. She had a spirit, this amazing spirit, but also she was not the person I imagined to be my mother. It was like, what? Who is this person? How did she end up like this? So instead of answering questions, it just raised more questions. The good part was that I stayed there for a couple of days and she'd actually arranged that I would meet the rest of the family. So I met her sister and I met 
at the time my grandmother was still alive. And this is a really important thing for any adoptee is that to find your birth family, it's not going to be great. It might not be wonderful, but it's really important for you because all those things start to heal the gaps. You know, I understood when I met my grandmother and she was this most amazing, lively woman that was then in a care home, but she had all her faculties and she was into Neil Diamond. She was this crazy, crazy social person. So then you realize the circumstances of what happened. Why were you surrendered? Because social pressure, she was married to a publican. So their life was in hotels. My mother had a one night stand got pregnant with me she was a nurse she was in cans nurses could not be pregnant nurses she was then banned from nursing and she was sent to Brisbane and she lived with her aunties weirdly in a house in a street in Belimba across the road from where I currently teach yoga wow so I learned all these stories and they're not great stories, but at the time they just caused me more pain. I met my auntie and my auntie was the first person that I met. There was a little bit of me. So she was kind of like sensible, um, safe pair of hands. As everyone says, when I go trekking, no one's ever died or any of my treks, Joe, just to let you know. That's good to know. Thanks, Heather. <laughs> so I am the world's safest pair of hands. So I couldn't understand how amongst all these people, where's me? And so my auntie was the first person that I felt like, shit, man, this is kind of, yeah, I can see me. So little bits and pieces. I've got two half sisters and two half brothers. One of my half sisters is a yoga teacher. The other half sister is a psychologist. Wow. Um, Yeah. They were all born in quite quick succession after I was surrendered. So after my mother surrendered me, she then got met and got married quite quickly, had four kids. And those kids are my half siblings and long story cut short, we don't have an ongoing relationship. I flew to Cairns to have to went to a yoga retreat with my half sister as a bonding exercise. And she shared the whole family tree with me, like where were our origins? And that was all great. Except what I realized is that when you're the missing link, they just want to they just want to tick the boxes for them. It was very much like, we want to meet this person, we want to understand this person, and we've done that now. See you later. So there's no ongoing, there's no ongoing contact. They don't feel that they need me to be part of their family because they already have their family. And I'm just kind of like extra things. So now, now they I she actually put me into the family tree. Once you put my name in the family tree and click that box, it's like, see you later. I've done that. Tick. So my auntie is the only person I have an ongoing relationship with. And that's been joyful because when I go to Cairns, I catch up with her. And last time we're there, she bought her, she bought her one of her daughters over and their kids. And we sat there and talked just like family. And we laughed about the same things. We realized we had the same sense of humor. There was nothing attached to it. It was just fun 
and enjoyable. And I walked away thinking, oh, so that's kind of like what families are. So good and bad, mostly bad. Yeah. But so it's, glad um, that I did. Yeah. Yeah, that extended family can sometimes be um, where we find those pearls. You know, for me, um, not to say I didn't find pearls when I met my other, like, more immediate family, but the thing that exists between you, the rub, so to speak, often doesn't exist as you go further out in the tree and those relationships can be really um, easier to manage sometimes. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad that you have that relationship with your aunt and that that's a connection and I hope it continues to grow for you, Heather. I read um, in an interview that you did with Thomas Graham, um, he used to edit the Australian Journal of Adoption, I think it was called, um, amazing fellow. You did an interview with him for Ipsify back in 2016 that um, in the early, and you mentioned it just before, how in the early stage of discovery that you saw a psychologist and thought, you know, you'd tick the box and when trauma started showing up in your life later, that no can't be adoption because I've ticked that box. Um, and as you read, I, I really resonate with that. It resonated with me, I should say, because um, I found my own path through understanding adoption's impact on me and my trek to healing, so to speak, um, has been multi-pronged and with a few dead ends along the way. Um, and I was also sort of looking for an initial speedy full stop, you're cured time to move on. That's what I wanted. That's who I am as a person. Yeah. And what I've discovered instead is that I need to make peace with the idea that adoption will forever impact my life. And I just need to be able to recognize when it's flaring up and how to regulate myself. Um, and even more importantly, be proactive in ensuring that I'm in the best place I can be to deal with those moments. And for me, that's ended up um, having agency in my own healing. So making a choice to point my ship in that direction. And I keep it pointed there. And I collect tools along the way that help, such as doing my own research, peer support, listening to and learning from others, taking action to connect with and understand my biological heritage. And probably the most important thing and the thing I've really been focusing on in the last couple of years is taking care of my general health through nutrition and regular exercise and setting up boundaries in my life. Um, and that's been really pivotal for me in these last few years. And so I guess the keys for me have boiled down to patience with myself, choosing my path, regular self-assessment and a willing and open heart. Um, so you've kind of already talked some of these things through, but I'll see if there's anything to add. Um, seven years on from your Thomas interview, I'd like to revisit the question that he asked you to see what evolution you've had since then and ask what you have also, besides the things you've already spoken about, found helpful in bringing peace and calm to your life as a consequence of adapting to your adoptive status. It took me, well, I remember clearly the Thomas interview because at that point, the whole thing was so big that I couldn't, I couldn't even put it into words mm -hmm. that the story was so big. And I remember a breakthrough was I wrote, I wrote it down and I put it on Facebook and it was like sharing the first time I'd actually wrote the story down. And to me, that was the first time I'd actually be able to gather this thing in, into something manageable to write my story. This is, where I was when it happened, what time it was, little links. And then I spoke to Thomas. And at that point, 
it was the first time I could talk about it. And as everyone knows, being able to talk about it is really one of the first steps. Along the way, the reason I'm still here and reasonably thriving is that I found a psychologist that was just the person that I needed. Um, and I still see her every three weeks. I think of all the money that I've spent <laughs> on seeing my psychologist, I could have built a house by now. Mm -hmm. um, it's expensive. You have to show up, like you said, and you have to do the work. And the work is ongoing. And anything that pushes you off the path, so COVID, you know, lockdown, not having um, losing an income or having to do something. And, of course, it triggers. Every time it triggers something adoption-related, you have to have the tools to manage it. So my psychologist has been so integral in the understanding how complex PTSD changes everything to the point where understanding. So when I started, I went to see her, not because I was adopted. I went to see her because I was having panic attacks on the bike. And I could not see that not being able to ride my bike and being adopted were even related. So the past seven years have been about putting those two things together. And that understanding that that was driven by that. So it was every time it's so disappointing. There's the acceptance. There's the anger. Learning that being angry is a much healthier emotion than internalizing. That I couldn't get angry to start with. Every time something happened, I would blame myself. And so learning to be angry was a real thing that's okay you know being angry externalize it don't internalize it um, so it's the tools the constant reflection of listening to what I say I get so pissed off and angry when I think about how I have not accepted jobs because I wasn't confident in my skills um, how I talk myself out of doing something because I didn't think I'd be successful uh, you know, I could have done this. I could have been this person. Regret, disappointment, anger, bad relationships, everything. It affects everything in your life. Why was it that I would meet a guy who was just amazing and as soon as I got a little bit close to him, I would finish that relationship and I would actively pursue relationships with people that were unattainable. So I used to think I'd go through this, people would joke going, first of all, I'd go with an arsehole, then I'd go with a doormat, then I'd go with an arsehole, then I'd go with a doormat. So I didn't want someone that was going to be the person that was going to look after me because I knew that they would reject me eventually. So why not like someone that was unattainable because then they couldn't reject you. So it's a, it affects every part of your life. It affects, and until you understand how you are basically sabotaging your life through all those decisions. You, you cannot really have a healthy future. So it's turning up. And every time that I have to turn up to that session with my psychologist, it costs me money, it takes time, and you just have to do the work. And that's been my thing. We built up a really good, you know, relationship, professional respectful relationship that I've now been seeing her since 2010, probably 13 years. 
and I'm still on the path to healing. Um, and this is a person that in 2007 thought that I'll be really happy if this is all over in a month, you know, tick that box, <laughs> move on. So the disappointment of not being able to fix it, that it, like you said, it, it's, it never changes. It's ongoing. It's le learning to have a life and living with it. And things like, you know, everyone says, oh, I love looking at your photos of drinking coffee, you know, and weird parts of the world. There's something about that because there is a pleasure, a simple pleasure in being warm, comfortable, safe, drinking a cup of coffee. And so to me, they're the important things. Not, I don't care if I'm, I'm not wealthy or I never have a big house because it's never been important to me. If I've got a tent and I've got all my belongings in my back and I'm warm and I'm safe, I'm happy. So they're the things that make me me. And now I understand that I love those things. I don't hate those things that I'm quite unique. And it's like going this full circle that what I am at my heart is that same person I always was. So despite the fact that all this shit has happened, nothing changes me because you're always you. And it's the understanding of the inner child work, going back to feeling that all those decisions that you make from when you're a little tiny baby even though you're abandoned, that you develop the survival skills and it's those things. Now, why am I a safe pair of hands when I go to Nepal? Because I can know how to look after people because I know how to look after myself. And so it's that beautiful coming full circle that you go, I was right all along. Every decision I made was the right decision. It wasn't the wrong decision. So it's trust and belief. And now making better decisions about who your friends are, making better decisions about what you do. But the things that I hold close to me, just like in your introduction, never changed. Teaching yoga, <laughs> trekking, swimming, drinking coffee, the simple things that make life worth living. And that's always there. So I've moved along a lot in my journey, but the basics haven't changed, which I love that, yep, still like those same things. Enable always be important to me. And I realized, of course, why do I hate Brisbane? Oh, hello, because Brisbane is a place that you're abandoned. Why did I have my first panic attack on the bike outside Royal, Wis Ris Royal Brisbane Hospital? Because Royal Brisbane Hospital was where I was abandoned. How does your, how do you know that? How does your inner heart know that happened because that trauma is there you know and so until you let it out deal with it so like i remember my psychologist saying every time you peel off a layer it just reveals another layer and then you have to allow that layer to heal and you peel off that layer and there's another layer so it never stops but i understand now i look back and go oh right so that's why that happened or that's why i felt like shit and the most important thing is that you understand your reactions are correct. That the thing that, yes, of course you're angry. It's okay to be angry because you're feeling normal reactions to a very not normal situation. And I think that's the thing that adoptees have to remember is that your reactions are so right. Of course you're going to react because someone has just 
exploded your world. And so very unnormal situation and you're a very normal person. And one of the best books I read that helped me along my journey was Marg Watson's book, Surviving Secrets. Um, and like you said, some parts, every adoption story shares some parts and some parts are unique. But I remember reading Marg's story and the things, the connection to her birth mother and the things that were missing in her adoption, you know, her, her adopted parents' family and all these little things that helped me along my journey. So I remember reading Mark's story and that was really important. But at that time, I was very early in my journey, whereas Mark seemed to have it all worked out. You know, she'd moved along because she was probably 10 years ahead of me. Um, they're helpful. All those things are helpful, which is why I really enjoyed this opportunity today, hoping that our discussion will help someone else. And only this morning, two hours ago, I was texting a friend of mine, trekking friend, um, who's been on two treks with me and she was sitting in her office and she was had her mala beads her beads that she just bought in Nepal and she was sitting there meditating on her mala beads in her corporate job deciding how she was going to cope with being in an office and not trekking <laughs> I said hey guess what in 20 minutes I'm doing a podcast about finding out I was adopted when I was 47 and she said well on the weekend they had a relative, close family relative, who's 70, and she just found out. Yeah. 70 years old. So it's happening every day, everywhere. And so hopefully our story, our chat today will help someone else. Yeah, and I'm sure it will. And I mean, you know, we run the forced adoption support service, and I can tell you that that's starting to account for more and more of the people that we speak to because, you know, it's been over 30 years since the adoption records got opened up now so we've seen already a lot of those people and now it's the people who didn't know or have really complex cases um, that are coming to us and and I would say it's not getting the work's getting harder because everything's getting more complex yes yeah 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 Heather, look, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Um, I've loved talking to you and getting to know you better. As I said, I've um, been fascinated with you and now I feel like I've got a bit more of an insight into who you are and um, I've loved learning about that. And you absolutely will help somebody else along their journey. And I truly hope that one day I get to join you in magical Nepal and I do feel like I've been safe hands. So thank you. Thank you, Joe. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll put up any relevant links on our podcast notes page. Meanwhile, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. Note that Adopt Perspective can be and is listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, 
Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.